Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today, we will hear from Ben Ginsburg, one of America's most accomplished and respected election lawyers. He served as national counsel to the Bush-Cheney presidential campaigns in the 2000 and 2004 election cycles and played a central role in the 2000 Florida recount. He was also appointed by President Barack Obama to serve as co-chair of the Bipartisan Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Today, he'll discuss the various voting and election bills that are being considered in the states as well as in the U.S. Congress. Let's listen in. We're incredibly uh, lucky tonight. Um, Welcome all to the call. Uh, We really appreciate it. And we're incredibly lucky tonight to have Ben Ginsburg um, offering to share his um, uh, understanding and expertise uh, with us. He's a nationally known elections lawyer with um, 38 years experience. I think, Nancy, I met you about 38 years ago. I think you were seven. So I met you in your childhood. Um, and uh, But Ben's been doing this for 38 years. Um, his clients have included political parties and campaigns and candidates and members of Congress, state legislatures, governors, corporations, trade associations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he's represented four of the last six Republican uh, presidential nominees. He was um, uh, uh, co-chair of the bipartisan presidential commission that Barack Obama, President Obama appointed. Um, and he's done so many uh, other things. Uh, that commission uh, produced a, a report in 2014 on best practices and recommendations. It was uh, widely viewed very highly. So we're incredibly lucky to have him. Um, as with most of our events, the way we're going to do this is we're going to turn the um, speaker over to him and he's going to talk a little bit, but we're going to have plenty of time for questions and answers. Uh, so please think about uh, the questions you have. And then I think Liz Morrison uh, is going to collect those. So send them to her and then we'll try to give everybody a chance to um, get to their questions if we can. But uh, without any further ado, again, um, Ben, thank you so much for doing this and I'm going to hand it over to you. Well, Josh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Nancy and Liz and uh, all of you. Good to see so many uh, old friends on this call, actually, which is a uh, an added treat. So let me talk to you uh, a little bit tonight about what's going on in the states with uh, many of the voting bills that Republicans are uh, trying to pass, especially in states they control. Uh, that does have some long-term ramifications, uh, to say the least, uh, on the democracy. And then talk a little bit about what's going on in Washington with the election reform bill uh, that the Democrats are trying to pass. And lastly, um, suggest that, in fact, the area of election administration and voting laws in, is one in which we should and really need to have bipartisan agreement. Uh, and there are some areas where uh, I think that can be achieved and it's worth um, hitting on them. Uh, the quick disclaimer in all of this is that uh, while I represented uh, Republican candidates and parties, for that uh, hard to be believed uh, 38 years. Um, I don't agree with much of what the Republican Party is doing now in these uh, voting bills, but uh, my goal tonight is not uh, really to justify it, but to try and explain it to you because in as polarized a country as we are today, uh, it's important to, um, to at least hear what 
the what the what both sides are doing in this area. So the bills that Republicans are putting up in the states that you've heard uh, so much about, especially in Georgia, uh, but others as well, are, are prompted in part in trying to justify, having to justify uh, dealing with the politics of the situation created by what Donald Trump said in the campaign, the big lie. Um, There is no uh, evidence of systemic voter fraud that would have overturned the election, yet it is uh, a drum that the Trump forces are banging uh, constantly and consistently. Uh, We want to talk about that. Uh, And the other justification or reason that Republicans are pushing these laws is sort of a pure political fear that the demographics in many of these states are changing and that the emerging populations are ones that are not going to vote for Republicans so that the control that they have now may fade away. So I'm going to operate from the basic principle that it's always bad when a party that has control of both legislative branches and the executive branch tries to change the rules of the game for political advantage. In other words, results-driven reform uh, generally turns out bad for the democracy. And that's true whether it's done by Republicans uh, or or Democrats. Um, When Republicans uh, are doing it, they're particularly doing it in the states they control. That is Georgia. It's also true in Texas, Arizona, New Hampshire, Florida, and uh, Michigan because of a little quirk in the way they do uh, referendums there, which we can um, discuss. But the general idea is putting up barriers to voting for groups Republicans believe won't uh, vote with. Uh, That was also the theme, by the way, in much of the pre-election litigation uh, that you saw from Republicans, some 60-some cases uh, about one and a half of which they actually uh, won. And it's also true with the post-election uh, litigation that you saw Trump file to try and overturn the results of the, uh, of the elections, uh, which, was, uh, which failed in every case, in large part because of Republican officials who actually stood up to Trump. And it's important to talk about the reasons that they were able to stand up to Trump when we talk about uh, the bipartisan reforms that should come in this area. But another principle of this is that putting up barriers to uh, voting because a party is afraid uh, that it won't um, win elections is wrong on the principle of it, on policy of it, and even on the politics of it, right? So the principle is every eligible voter should be allowed to vote without undue barriers put up uh, before them. The policy part is that is that the bills are based on the big lies, so they run hollow. Um, but the other reality to this, and this is a subject for discussion potentially, is that I don't think these bills actually work in uh, in in suppressing the vote that what we saw in the 2020 election was a record turnout in a pandemic. And so that is a testament to even when barriers are put up before people, if they are energized by the election, and goodness knows Donald Trump knew how to 
uh, energize this electorate, um, then in fact they do they do vote. Uh, Nate Cohen had a really interesting article in the New York Times a week ago Sunday that describes this um, theory more. If any of you want to want to delve into it, um, and the politics of the situation, why I don't think this is actually working out for the Republican Party's best interests is that Republicans are handing Democrats a great get-out-the-vote motivator in trying to stop people uh, from voting. And it's alienating uh, not the MAGA crowd, which is perhaps the loudest voice uh, in, in the Republican Party these days, but to look at the 2020 returns, Republicans are losing support pretty darn quickly in, uh, in the suburbs. And the fights the Republican Party is getting in with corporate America over these bills is also going to have uh, political implications uh, potentially. So uh, what I would like to see the Republican Party doing instead of putting up barriers to voting is actually modifying its conservative policies to be able to appeal to emerging uh, uh, populations in all these states. Uh, you know, and, and the Republican Party should actually take some solace from the fact that Donald Trump did much better in Latino and African-American areas in this election than he did in 2016. So there are some conflicting um, signs, but all of them suggest that this is not a wise political strategy um, for the Republican Party. There are also two things that need to be acknowledged in this conversation. Uh, the first is the obvious one that I know all of you are, are acutely aware of, which is polarization has never been worse. Uh, people on both sides, the red team and the blue team, feel really passionately about things, aren't really talking to each other, uh, and don't, um, don't really believe that there's an ounce of truth in what the opposite team is saying. Uh, and the second is sort of an offshoot of that, which is for really bad reasons, the reality exists still that 30 to 35% of the electorate believes that our elections are fraudulent. Uh, that is a ticking time bomb that needs to be addressed and dealt with probably in a couple of different ways, but bipartisan uh, legislation is is really one of them. So looking at, at the election bills in the states in that context, Republicans um, have been rightly criticized for trying to restrain our fundamental rights. Um, but the reality of our elections is there should be bills improving them after each election. Uh, I, I, our elections are not perfect. Uh, I base that on, on having been involved in, in about 30 recounts on all levels. What recounts are is popping open the hood uh, of the election engine and having to examine how it works. And the answer is it doesn't work uh, with a great deal of precision. If you were designing our election system, you would not design it the way it is now. There are over 10,000 jurisdictions with responsibility for the casting and counting of votes. You will not be surprised to learn, and I want to try and say this gently, that the abilities of the people over 10,000 jurisdiction varies uh, just a touch. And you have to take that into account. And secondly, 
our elections really work because of volunteers. Uh, there are over a million volunteers in polling places every day. They, they bear a huge amount of the work in being sure that our elections are accurate. But you know, they are volunteers and they're volunteering for an activity that takes place two days every other year. And so it is not a highly trained workforce in this. So our institutional designs uh, contribute to all of this. As a general rule, the, um, the, the bills that have been filed in the different states uh, are really on about five different areas. Mail-in absentee voting, a great increase uh, in this pandemic year. This time, 108, out of 108 million out of 158 million people voted before uh, election day with um, Trump's rhetoric, uh, really the ultimate voter suppression of Republican votes. Um, Biden won two thirds of the early vote and Trump won two thirds of the election day vote. For early in-person voting, uh, Trump won 51 to 48. So that was pretty close. Uh, the bills are also involved in, in changes to the voter registration procedures, election day voting procedures, and the authority of state and local officials over elections. And that's an emerging area uh, that we might uh, discuss some more. So in the states where Republicans control both branches of the legislature and the governorship, it's all about adding additional uh, identification or signature requirements for mail voting, for limiting drop boxes uh, as ways to, to uh, cast your ballot. Uh, state legislatures get more control over elections at the expense of local officials, uh, something to watch out for. Uh, greater scrutiny of voter registration lists, lists, which actually should be part of the bipartisan package. And then in really one of the um, sort of tone deaf uh, measures of all time, stopping uh, people waiting in long lines from getting food and water. So Georgia managed to create the impression that grandmothers giving grandmothers voter uh, water would be arrested for, um, for that activity. Uh, you know, uh, when, when it comes down to um, to what happened in Georgia as an example of what happened in the country. Um, there were actually some parts of the Georgia law that made a lot of sense, but they were wrapped up in a lot of other uh, provisions that caused problems. But uh, we should talk a little bit about voter identification. It's true Georgia changed its voter identification requirements. Um, it, they're now in line with California, New Jersey, and Virginia, uh, pretty blue states. Uh, the, the same with the signature match requirements that Georgia put in. It's actually now the same as, as the Democrats in Wisconsin put in long ago. The Georgia law did extend early voting. Uh, it dealt with ballot harvesting, which is a, a sort of a bad practice the Supreme Court will deal with soon and the practice of universal ballots, uh, which is also something worth talking about. But the point is, is that meritorious uh, provisions got buried in bad parts uh, in order to gain uh, an electoral advantage. Now, I wanna turn uh, uh, to sort of tee up the situation in Washington with the Democrats' um, uh, so-called election reform bill. 
SR1, which is uh, also S1, in that they're describing the provisions of that bill as reform. And in fact, there are some really good provisions that should be enacted into law. But in the totality of the roughly 800-page bill, there are also provisions that are designed to give Democrats a clear electoral advantage going forward. So uh, while Republicans are dealing in really the far more pernicious area of denying individuals a right to vote, nonetheless, the behavior of the political animal in trying to gain electoral advantages to make up for electoral failings is true in in H.R. 1 as, as well. And it is not a matter of uh, Democrats acknowledging they're not winning elections in any number of red states uh, because of their policies that are not working in those states. It is an attempt to kind of change the rules of the game. It is roughly the equivalent of a football team that has a potent uh, offense but can't score points saying, you know, we don't want points to be the determinant in who wins the game. We now want to have it as total yards gained should decide the winner. Truth is, we've got our rules. We've had them for a long time. And there are virtues in sticking with um, with those rules. And so some examples of H.R. 1 trying to change the rules of the game to make up for electoral defeats include uh, imposing redistricting commissions uh, on the states. Now, a number of people think redistricting commissions are a great idea, but the Democrats spent somewhere uh, over $100 million, well over $100 million in the 2020 elections trying to win state legislative chambers so they would be able to draw the maps and redistricting. In point of fact, they failed. They didn't flip any chambers at all. They lost a total of 135 seats. So lo and behold, this bill uh, is now being pushed by the Democratic leadership to get rid of, to to forbid legislatures from doing the redistricting and turning it over to commissions. This bill, Democrats can't win. They thought they were going to win 55 seats in the U.S. Senate. Uh, They came up with 50. Now they want to change the makeup of the U.S. Senate by giving additional uh, jurisdictions, U.S. Senate seats. Uh, That's for a political advantage due to a failure to win elections in the state. Uh, There is a provision in there that provides taxpayer funding uh, for federal campaigns. Uh, If you agree to not take contributions of over $1,000, every $200 contribution will be matched six times so that a $200 contribution would be worth $1,400 to a candidate. Um, You know, I'm not sure that's really well thought out. If you look at the number of small dollar donations that the the Gateses and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world pulled in this cycle, that would be like $15 billion uh, out the door to those candidates, probably not the purpose uh, of, of trying to put in this provision. Um, and so let me let me um, stop there. Uh, we can certainly talk about potential uh, areas of agreement. Great. Well, thanks so much. That was awesome. Richard Davis, you're going to be first, and then Frida 
Wallison, you're going to be second. Um, so, Richard, if you can start us off, that'd be great. Thank you. I should say that I'm a member of the New York City Campaign Finance Board, but we actually have a matching system, but it, it, it doesn't allow unlimited matching, meaning there are limits that go with what you can spend in the race. But that wasn't, I just want to clarify that there are ways to do matching systems that actually can work. One of the things that I'd be curious your view is, because I think that as important as infrastructure is, this is in, in voting rights, this is important an issue to try and get bipartisan buy-in. And the question is, those provisions of the, you know, the HR1, which focus on creating national uniform rules uh, for early voting, mail-in voting, things like that, because my concern is that one of the things that breeds uh, cynicism is seeing all these differences in all the states so do you think that it could be bipartisan, maybe sort of working on stripping out the campaign finance kind of provisions? I disagree with you about the redistricting. I actually would leave that in. But to try and create some uniform national rules that could, would be a, a predicate that for federal elections, this is the way, these are the rules for certain key elements of voting. Um, well, I think that that uh, it's an interesting question you raised. There's the elections clause to the Constitution, which I think does give Congress the power to regulate its election. But I don't think that I know that power does not extend to state elections. Right. So I mean, you do run the risk of um, of, of sort of a bifurcated election system. Um, I would also say that when I was doing this presidential commission. Um, my co-chairman was Bob Bauer, who was Obama and Biden's counsel, and we were the only political hacks on it. Everybody else were uh, uh, nonpartisan election officials. And all those nonpartisan election officials repeated to us uh, time and time again that one size does not fit all in elections, that you need to recognize uh, the differences within your own state about the, the needs of different localities. I think that is compounded even more in um, when you look to, to national elections. So there is a set of rules on campaign finance for federal elections. We also have 50 state laws that deal with the, the state and local ones. So um, the country's been operated for a long time on a fierce federalism that does give uh, a lot of control uh, to the states for this. And I'm not sure, I think you can regulate it for federal elections, but I'm not sure you really would be able to much beyond that. Well, if you, if you did it for federal elections, wouldn't the states almost have to start conforming their state laws to not have two, two separate uh, early voting provisions, two separate mail-in voting provisions, wouldn't it really drive a more uniform approach across the board, even though I agree legally you couldn't control state elections? Well, I think what you might end up doing uh, is actually having more states following the Virginia, New Jersey, Kentucky, Mississippi, and one other I'm forgetting model of having their state and local elections in odd number of years. And the other, look, the other point that's going to have to be dealt with at some point, and I don't want to get too legally nerdy here, but Article 1, Section 4 on the time, place, and manner of elections 
uh, the plain wording of the Constitution does give Congress the power to regulate its elections. But if you look at Article 2, Section 1, which deals with presidential elections, that power is given to state legislatures. There's no wording about Congress. And so I would expect that if this actually passed, one of the first legal challenges to the current Supreme Court would be that Congress can't regulate presidential elections in the manner that you're suggesting. And in fact, that's up to the state legislature. Great. Thanks, Richard. So um, uh, the next one is Frida Wallison and Tom Curl, you're on deck. Hi, Frida Wallison from Colorado. And Peter Wallison is here with me. Ah, give him my best. It's been a long time. Ben, great to see you. You too, Peter. So, Ben, you you um, alluded to this. You talked about 35% of the electorate not uh, having a faith that the 2020 election was carried out properly. And in my view, the... Uh, faith of the American people is in their elections is really important. And I, I act as an election judge, one of the volunteers you talked about <laughs> every year, every time of the, there's an election. So I think I'm pretty familiar with these processes. And Colorado is often held up as a model of um, good processes. We have an all-male situation here, so mail-in ballots was not unusual for us in the last election. But you seem to indicate at the outset that you seem to stress the barriers to voting and some of what's being proposed by the Republicans, um, and I, I just don't feel that that's a proper characterization. I, I don't understand why vo voter idea, ID is a barrier to voting. Uh, I, so I believe that that's what I mean about a number of the provisions that Republicans suggested, even in Georgia, should not be um, called barriers to voting. But there are others that, that are. I mean, look, to not allow people to drop off their absentee ballots at drop boxes uh, seems to me to be a barrier to, to voting. Voter ID is, I think, um, something that we ought to have that is necessary. Uh, I think that a better system for matching up signatures on absentee ballots is, but you can draw those standards too tight. You know, if you're judging, if you're judging ballots by penmanship, um, I'm not sure our signatures stay consistent over time. I don't think they're teaching penmanship much in, in school. And uh, so if you have too tight, if you're using signature matches and you have too tight a standard, you're going to knock out ballots, which I think is a barrier to, to voting. I think reducing the number of polling places that a jurisdiction has can be. I mean, Colorado is close to a unique state uh, in, the, in the way that it does it. Uh, and not everyone, not everyone is um, is quite there. Thanks. So um, next, uh, Tom Curl, and then we have one of our youth congress members. Uh, uh, it's uh, Samuel uh, Pumareo uh, is on deck. Tom. Okay, uh, I'm here in sunny subtropical southeastern Wisconsin today, and my question <laughs> relates to 
these laws, there various versions of them are going in, but if you buy the idea that some of the aspects of certain laws are to suppress voting, do you think those aspects would hold up in federal lawsuits? Well, I think some will and some won't. I mean, you've got you've got the issue of the discretion of the duly elected legislature. So, for example, to me, one of the more um, uh, interesting and potentially dangerous provisions in Georgia law is to strip the Secretary of State from his role on the State Board of Elections and to provide a way for the state legislature, not the State Board of Elections, to put in local election officials. I mean, I think that is a potentially dangerous practice, but I think it's one that's probably within the legislature's um, jurisdictional abilities. I think legislatures generally have wide discretion to set rules over absentee ballots, vote by mail, polling place um, rules. I mean, that is the time, place, and manner of Article One, Section 4 of the Constitution. Uh, so what those challenging the laws uh, are trying to show in most of the cases is that the laws provide a disparate impact on certain protected populations. So the argument goes that uh, if you don't for example, if you extend the deadline past election day for when ballots can be uh, received, that actually allows uh, minority populations to cast more votes. And if you try and get all ballots to be received on election day, that's a disparate impact against minority community. There was a case out of Arizona argued before the Supreme Court at the end of January, uh, the Hobbs case. That may are that may shed some light on on that particular issue. Thank you. Okay, so uh, uh, Samuel, uh, you're up, and Lee Adrian is on deck. Thank you, Josh. Um, well, uh, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Ben, for appearing uh, with us today. Um, just wanted to. This is kind of a a two parter. Uh, to what extent do you think the current presidential administration has it uh, within their power to use executive action uh, and use uh, existing federal legislation to curb uh, voter suppression uh, in the states? And what do you think the repercussions of, uh, of such action would, uh, would be, either political or, or legal? Well, I think the, the ability to use um, executive orders is pretty limited, again, because of the Article One, Section 4. Um, if, if by executive powers you mean, can you um, have the Justice Department weigh in uh, to, to sort of um, deal with voting rights issues, Voting Rights Act issues, then I think they have the ability to, to bring those cases and to litigate those cases. But I don't think you could use executive authority to come up with a regulatory scheme uh, that would be that you would force the states to use. I think that's a bridge too far. Thank you. Uh, so, Lee, and then Stephanie Moore, you're on deck. Uh, ben, this is Lee Adrian. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, so I've been living through a lot of Georgia <laughs> legislative yes, battles. 
Um, there's no question that where the Georgia legislation started was not a good place. They did take out some of the worst elements in, in getting to final yeah. legislation. But um, it's my understanding that the, the ID requirement for absentee vote, voting uh, replaces signature matching. And if that's correct, of course, it depends on the devil's in the details on both sides of that. It depends on how reasonable the process for uh, voter ID by mail is versus, you know, as you pointed out earlier in your comments, what are the strictures around signature matching? But how do you view the trade-off? I, it's my understanding, I think it was Colorado invalidated something like 25 or 30,000 votes on signature matching in this past election. If that had happened in Georgia and we had to litigate that, we'd still be litigating the, the election in Georgia, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, what, what Georgia did was uh, get rid of signatures. Uh, which I think is healthy, again, because I think signatures are, uh, people are not consistent with their signatures, and put in a system where you have to use, I think it's the last four digits of your social security or your uh, Georgia driver's license or state-issued ID number instead, right. uh, which, which to me is a fine reform that actually is an improvement. I think one, that's one of those things where um, where Georgia got got sort of a bad deal. There is also not yet ready for implementation, but promising technology involving uh, individual barcodes that people would get on their their absentee ballots, which I think would also uh, also seems to have a lot of potential. So I think that there are technical solutions, Georgia did a couple of them that, that really can improve things. Great. Stephanie Moore, and then followed by Jean Bernstein, please. Um, you mentioned something about Republicans modifying policies to encourage the emerging populations. And I'm interested in what you view emerging populations as. And second part of the question is, you said there needed to be, a, correct me if I'm wrong, a more bipartisan, as part of the bipartisan bill, more scrutiny in voter registration. And I'm interested to understand how that could be achieve, best achieved. Uh, well, first of all, I think emerging populations are different in every state, um, but, but racial minority communities are growing in this country. And in fact, within the next, I don't know, 30 or 40 years, um, uh, the white population will not be the majority population, and that's taking place uh, more rapidly in some states than others, and the, the precise populations um, are different from state to state. But I think what's true of the population as a whole is that the, the white, older uh, Republican base is shrinking as a percentage of the national population. And that's reflected in states. And that has uh, Republicans, uh, I think, electorally worried about it. Um, so the verification of voter registration is something, uh, you know, is at the foundation of whether you've got an election that people can believe in. And so 
uh, voter registration and then voter ID sort of go hand in hand. Uh, it, 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 the population of the U.S. changes. People move, people die. And so the voter rolls at any given time uh, are not accurate and need to be uh, need to be made more accurate. If they're not accurate, uh, you know, it leads to everything from confusion in the polling place to uh, sort of a breeding ground, a petri dish for charges that illegal votes took place. Um, so the maintenance of voter rolls to be accurate and the reg, which means the registrations, um, is really important in a I mean, I assume we will be more mobile as a society as we were before COVID, and we will be again. Uh, but people do move. And, you know, one of the reforms that I would put in is that there's a group called the uh, Electronic Registration Information Center, which is run by state election officials. And they basically cross-match the voter registration rules to pick up people that move. And it's bipartisan and very professional. It is not sort of a Chris Kobach, Kansas cross-check. Uh, and, and one of our recommendations in the Presidential Commission report was to adapt ERIC, to have all states participate. Not all states do, but, um, but that's a helpful reform in terms of accurate voter registration and voter rules. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm from San Diego, by the way. So Gene Bernstein, and then followed by Pamela Humphrey, please. Yes, hi, Gene Bernstein from uh, Florida. Uh, I'm wondering, and you started to talk about using technology. Uh, probably everyone on this Zoom is familiar with a company called ProxyVote, where you get proxies for corporate annual meetings. You have about an 11 number alphanumeric code for each individual. You can do it online. Uh, it's totally secure. The, the, they usually come out a month ahead of time, so there's plenty of time to get it done. Could you see us moving in this direction? I mean, it would be so efficient. You wouldn't be waiting weeks and even months after elections to know the results. Well, uh, I think I think one of the things, there are a whole talk about bipartisan reforms. Um, there are any number of things that should be done to get the results out sooner. I mean, uh, one of the one of the issues we ran into on the commission, in which a local election official still run into, is that the cybersecurity experts just go absolutely out of their skins when you suggest internet voting to them. Um, so I, you know, I know that I don't have the expertise to be able to argue with them, but I do know heated arguments when I hear them. Uh, and so I think we are not yet there in terms of, of internet voting. But you also raise an interesting point on when we get election results. You know, part of the problem that we had in this cycle was that the election results were not done promptly uh, in every state. And one of the bipartisan reforms I would really like to see is that all absentee ballots have to be received by election day. Uh, there were people who wanted an extension of the receipt of election day votes because uh, it was their belief that lots of votes came in after election day. In fact, um, 
the, the political science research has shown that there were not many votes that came in after election day. An NYU professor named Rick Pildes uh, did a compilation of that that I saw in a publication called The Conversation about two weeks ago, but really um, laid that out. And in fact, I think we'd be better off as a country uh, requiring the results be in on election day. And if people are worried about not having enough time to vote to expand early voting periods so that there is adequate time for everyone to vote. But, uh, you know, there were congressional elections in New York and California that weren't decided until into December. Now, imagine if one of those states that can't get your results is an outcome determinative state in a Bush versus Gore type recount situation, uh, that would be pretty messy. And there's no need for it. And there are technological ways to to be sure that you um, that you do get the results on election day. Thank you. Great. Uh, Pamela Humphrey and then followed by Maxine Clark. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. It's Pamela Humphrey from Boston. Um, I wanted to bring up the Wisconsin bill again, uh, partially because it it seems to have become the uh, metric for a great deal of uh, conversation and uh, hyperbole. And uh, you had said that there was part of the, that the the Wisconsin bill denies has provisions that deny eligibility to vote. And I was a little confused about that. And I was wondering for, if you could clarify. The other is, is that, uh, you know, the pundits are making hay out of the water food issue. And my understanding is that the water food issue was that people who are there to promote their candidates couldn't do it, but poll workers could. Um, and I thought that the drop boxes in Wisconsin were just formalized as to location as opposed to being scattered sort of randomly uh, all over the place. And if you could, um, and I don't understand why absentee ballot people couldn't put their ballots in those boxes. So those are kind of the pieces that um, I was wondering about because I think that the Wisconsin bill is going to be, be used as a, sort of a framework for other states and certainly the politicians. The the Georgia bill or the Wisconsin bill? I'm sorry, the Georgia bill. Excuse me. Uh, I'm not Georgia bill. Excuse me. Um, so, you know, the, the Dropbox provision in the Georgia bill was to, was to limit them to, I believe, one accounting, which, um, uh, you know, seems like probably uh, not enough that uh, there are legitimate concerns about security of drop boxes, and there are legitimate solutions to the, concern, the security concerns. I mean, you can have cameras on them 24 hours a day. You can put them in secure locations. Georgia limited its drop boxes to being open only during business hours. Uh, and they were roundly criticized for the fact that people who need to use drop boxes are probably the people who are working from nine to five and so need additional uh, off nine to five times to um, to take advantage of the, the drop boxes. 
I'm not, I'm not sure what you're referring to on the voter registration part. I'm sorry. Um, I thought you had said something about um, the ability to put absentee or mail-in ballots in those boxes is not being possible. And um, no, no, I, you, you, that's what they're, that's what they're for. Yeah. Okay. Then I mis- I just misunderstood what you had said because uh, so, that was confusing to me. The other was the water and food handout business. Yeah, the water and food handout business was was really an example of sort of a um, pure, uh, a poor communications uh, effort by the Georgia folks. I mean, there is a rule in many, many states about no campaigning within 150 feet of a polling place. And so it apparently was not aimed at uh, at partisan candidate representatives, but of kind of get out the vote group people, and so it, it's not it's not the the non electioneering within 150 feet, which is a perfectly reasonable prohibition, but that it was geared towards particular groups who were helping the people in um, in the places that had the longest lines. So it was it was really the way it appeared to be targeted in the rhetoric, as opposed to saying no politicking within 150 feet. That'd be a tough one to to, to monitor and you know splice as to whether it's just voter registration people who are helping or politicking. So maybe that's why they made it as clear as that, and that only poll workers could do could serve that function. But anyway, thank you so much. Great. Okay, so Maxine Clark and then Martha Conti and then Brad Freitag. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ginsburg, for being here. I'm Maxine Clark from St. Louis, Missouri. I have a question because I think that today when a baby is born in the United States, they're given a Social Security number or they can apply for one at birth. So I'm not sure what the number of, of humans born in America, American citizens, have Social Security numbers, but it's much more than when I was born. You had to wait and get pylon when you were old enough, I think, to go to work. So if we have social security numbers for everyone and we know where people were born and we have death certificates, what is, what's in the way of making those match up? Is that a lack of technology in the United States, in different states? It seems to me that we, we have identifying numbers. And I agree with that proxy question is that I've been voting my proxy um, for years online and nobody even ever suggests that that's, you're doing something illegal or it's not working, but I don't mind mailing it in. I don't mind dropping it in a Dropbox. I, I'm trying to figure out how do we get more people registered to vote, and why can't we check those across if they if they're born and then if they died. Um, the moving part might be a little bit different, but the other idea was in in Missouri in St. Louis they made it possible for you to go to any polling place to vote because they use a an iPad system that looks you up and it can tell you. Normally, I used to go to the polling. You go to the one usually closest to your house. But, but generally speaking, you could go anywhere in Missouri and they looked you up on the system. I tested it out this year and went to one that wasn't in my neighborhood. And they just looked me up in the system with my, my, um, my name and my social security number. And I was there. That, that's a really good point. I mean, that goes to what I said before about there being over uh, 10,000 jurisdictions responsible for the counting and casting of ballots and that there is not uh, even abilities among those 10,000 uh, jurisdictions. So there are states, and Missouri is one of them, that have this figured out. Uh, you know, part of the Georgia law was that y- if you went to the wrong precinct, 
uh, a voter couldn't vote. So what is like just a common practice in Missouri was used in Georgia uh, in that bill to to disqualify people. Um, so that, that, I mean, I think you're right. I think there are solutions to all of this. Uh, again, the difficulty is the number of, of different jurisdictions and the fact we, we are a, a federalist system so that each state and really locality has a huge amount of authority. Thanks. Okay, so Martha Conti. Yes, um, I guess mine's as much a, a, a comment as a question. It, it seems to me that there's a framing issue here and that there are reasonable, there are Western countries that don't allow any mail-in voting or absentee voting. And, and we sort of presume that 100% voting is, is, uh, is necessarily the goal and that we have to do everything, everything short of uh, facilitating that is voter suppression. And I feel like, you know, voting is both a, a right and a privilege. And it's not unreasonable to ask people to do things that are reasonable and not targeted at any particular group. So not racially discriminatory or gender or working class but things that that uh, that are reasonable expectations for people to uh, hurdles for people to um, to be able to vote. It doesn't have to be uh, you know everybody automatically gets mailed a ballot and they should vote whether they choose to take any effort or not. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think that there are people who deliberately choose not to vote because they don't like the candidates or don't like the system generally or don't think it's relevant to them. And, I, you know, we're set up so that's a perfectly acceptable um, uh, alternative for someone to, to adopt. I mean, I think it's too bad because everyone does have a stake in who our leaders are. But uh, their, their universal voting has never been achieved and never really been a, a policy or a goal, even if it is in, in any number of other countries. Okay, great. We're getting, try to be fast with the questions. Uh, Brad, uh, you, and then Linda, leave us after that. Uh, great, thank you. Uh, Mr. Ginsburg, a question about, continue questions about uh, voter ID. It feels to me like, these battle lines have been drawn and, um, you know, that, that it's almost taboo to talk about the notion that, that we should put basic protections in place to ensure that individuals are authenticated during the voting process. It's, you know, plenty of examples have come up here. I, I work in the communications industry. We have billions of iPhone or of, uh, smartphones around the world, uh, that we all know dual factor authentication. So I'm certain the solutions are there, uh, but maybe you could inform me, is my perception that these battle lines have been drawn and, you know, it, it's created this taboo to have a reasonable discussion about mm. voter ID and, and authentication. And I can't it just, I, I can't understand who would be opposed to the idea that you should have to show up and represent who you are in order to be able to vote for, you know, this great country. Um, I, I think that you're right, but I can describe the, the overwhelming majority of court cases 
in this area and what and what happens. So when a state uh, uh, decides to pass a voter ID requirement, uh, there are and they're largely suits brought by Democrats on behalf of racial minority groups that claim there is a disparate impact if you have that registration requirement. And so therefore it is a discriminatory action in violation of the 14th Amendment to impose a voter ID requirement. Now, the the reason this became such a, um, a, a poisonous area originally was that states did impose ID requirements and limited the types of IDs that could be used. So in other words, there were driver's licenses, but no state IDs for people who weren't drivers. Well, I mean, that that's probably not the way to go. Uh, so you need to make uh, some sort of state ID universally available at no cost. I mean, states in the past have tried to impose costs on getting state-issued ID. And then there are also fights in the different states over what kind of ID is acceptable ID. So, um, you know, hunting and fishing licenses might be considered acceptable IDs, but student IDs were not. Well, there's sort of a, a political purpose behind distinctions like that in some instances. And so that brought up a series of issues. But I think you're right overall uh, about ID. First of all, you needed some sort of identification to get a COVID shot. So everybody, uh, or government payment. So everybody's got something that they can use. And again, the way that governors like Doug Ducey in Arizona and Brian Kemp in Georgia could tell Donald Trump he was wrong, that their elections were accurate, was that they could point to the voter ID provisions in their state to issue guarantees that there weren't illegitimate voters in it. So IDs are part of of the fundamental protections on the appearance of our elections being accurate. Okay, we're almost out of time. If we go real quick, Linda, you can go. And then I think Rich Lesser, you're unfortunately gonna be last. And and I apologize to all we didn't get to, but this has been fantastic. So Linda, real quick. Linda Liebes, Amateo County, California. I too have been a volunteer for years in the elections. And I can say that an 800 page a bill sounds horrific to me. <laughs> and I think it could, my question to you to be brief is from what I hear, no Republican will vote for it and no Democrat will change a word of it. What hope do we have that they can negotiate, get the best of it and pass it? Um, Well, I don't think they have uh, 50 Democratic votes in the Senate right now, in Mm -hmm. large part because a number of those uh, provisions that I mentioned. And uh, if they want to, I mean, the good parts of it could be uh, voted on if they split up the bill. But so far, Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi have said they're not going to bifurcate out the provisions. So the way that you could get some bipartisan compromise is not to have it a massive 800-page bill, but to actually go through regular order on the different provisions. Any chance of that happening? Um, It's a little hard to see at the moment. Okay. I mean, I think this is a bill, I think this is a bill in which 
the, the Democrats will never say it is over and done, but there will be missing person notices um, sent out for it periodically uh, over the next 18 months when nothing happens on it. Okay, thanks. Rich, real quick, last question. Right, quick, ben, you, thanks again. Thank you, Rich Lester, New York. Thank you for joining us, Ben. You've commented on HR1, but I don't remember you commenting on HR4 or what I've heard is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, particularly the focus on pre-clearance as a way to address this uh, specific election issue. Do you have a view on the John Lewis bill on HR4 and any, any prospects of that being more successful than HR1 might be? Um, I think that there are prospects of it being more successful if parts of it can be amended. I mean, coverage formulas are difficult things, right? Section five, the preclearance formulas got tossed out by the Supreme Court uh, as being sort of outmoded and overbroad uh, and basically targeting certain states, especially in the South, who claim they had changed their practices. Um, I think it is difficult today to say that there's not um, kind of different uh, discriminatory voting practices in any number of jurisdictions who were not covered uh, in the previous voting rights bill. So the most difficult uh, aspect of it will be dealing with which jurisdictions uh, are, are going to be covered. And many of the jurisdictions, or at least some of the jurisdictions that probably should be covered under an objective analysis uh, are Northeastern and Upper Midwestern cities who will, um, I'm going to guess, protest vehemently that they should not be covered. So I think the politics of getting in a new coverage formula are pretty tough. Thank you. Okay, thanks again. Thanks all for joining. Uh, keep uh, keep looking at your emails for other um, fascinating speakers. And clearly, we didn't get to everyone. So Ben, you were uh, clearly a huge hit. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Great questions. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break on No Labels Podcast.